Happy New Year, everybody. Looking great. Well done, everybody, including the kids. I will do my best to make sure that this message involves a story about a pirate sometime, just to give you some something interesting to talk about. And scars, pirates and scars. Now they've got your attention. All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 6. And we're just going to look at the first few lines of the Lord's Prayer. And I'll read it for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. This is Jesus' teaching. He says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One more time. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, New Year's is great. Well, people say it is. It's actually the most anticlimactic day on the calendar for me. It's like, yay, the second hand ticked. And now it's 2017. Yay, batteries that worked in our clocks. I don't know what exactly it is. But tradition it has been for a long time that people make New Year's resolutions, right? You look over the last year, you think, oh, what didn't go so great? What can I tweak or majorly change for the new year? But then pastors got into this habit of saying, don't do resolutions because they're not grace-based. You know, we're supposed to be looking to the Lord and it's not by your own effort and stuff like blah, 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 blah. And I think we were so successful that people just quit on resolutions in general, right? We're just like, well, whatever happens. I'm just going to try to recover from staying up late and drinking too much eggnog and then go to work on Monday. Um, So that leaves us at a loss because if I get up here and say, let's talk about grace-based not doing resolutions, most people will be like, yeah, done. Can I go now? Um, (laughs) So instead of doing anything about resolutions, um, this year I've just been thinking about um, refocusing on the center. You know, what's this all about? What 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 is the church about? What is Jesus about? Why are we here? What are we doing? It's good to ask yourself that every once in a while, especially when you're on a roller coaster and the safety bar has just latched down and will not be coming up until the end of the ride. It's really good to ask yourself, what exactly am I doing here? Um, Or if you're walking down the aisle towards a marriage, maybe you should have asked yourself that before then, but this is a good question. What are we doing here? What exactly is going on? Um, And I think that Jesus answers that question in his teaching on prayer, all right? If you're the Lord, somebody wants you to teach them how to pray, um, this is an important question. This is somebody saying, what should my relationship with God be like? When I get alone with him for prayer and fasting, what, what are we supposed to do? Paint me a picture. What's the right way to do this thing? 
And when Jesus did his teaching on prayer, he wasn't just giving them some stuff to keep them busy, you know, and he wasn't even giving them general principles. Sometimes when we teach on prayer, we talk about general principles like you start with confession and then you move into Thanksgiving and then you do petition and then you hit up some Thanksgiving again, you know, and these are general ideas. So you start by confessing, oh, God, forgive me. I did this, that thing. And, and that other thing that I didn't talk to my spouse about, which I probably should. So forgive me for not talking about my spouse in advance as well, because I'm not actually planning on doing it. And then you just work through those general ideas. But Jesus doesn't give general ideas. He actually gives specific words. And in Matthew, he says, pray like this. So he gives you some leeway to kind of jump off of these words. But in Luke, he says, say this, say exactly these words. And he starts off with a prayer that captures what everything is all about. He says, when you pray, say, heavenly father, hallow your name. Heavenly father, make your name holy. Um, that's essentially what it is. We don't hear the word hallow very often, except for on October 31st. We hear it a little bit, right? We, we put the word sound in after the word hallow when you have Halloween. And um, which essentially the history behind Halloween is that in the Catholic calendar, November 1st was All Saints Day. And it's a day that everyone would get together to celebrate all the saints. And they had quite a lot for one reason or another. But the night before that was the eve of all saints day and their old word for it was hallow you hallow something you make it holy the saints are holy people they are the hallowed people and when you have an all hallowed day it was to remember all the hallowed people all the saints and the night before that was the all hallowed evening and then you shorten that up and you get halloween and then you forget it had anything to do with knowing god and you just make it a night about um, candy and ultra cheap costumes and then you have our modern-day Halloween. And for some reason, the translators of most Bibles still keep that word in there for this petition, this, this prayer to God. They, Hallowed be your name. And I'm sure it has part to do with just remembering the King James English version. But also, if you just translated these words, um, how, make your name holy, it, it still would seem weird because we don't talk like that. Hey, hon, what did you do today? Oh, I made my name holy. It's like, you know, we don't... Made someone's name holy... Really? What, what did that entail? Did it hurt? Um, are you going to need a Band-Aid? You know, we don't talk like that. We don't, um, we don't think in those terms very often. And I think that even if you were to pray, My Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, there wouldn't be necessarily a lot of content to what we were praying. What exactly does that mean? How do you do that? So I want to walk through that to start off with, what does it mean to make someone's name holy? What does it make, mean to make the Father's name holy? And there's a couple of ideas, but I just want to blend together the ideas of it's, is it something to do with preciousness and something to do with honor? Okay, those two ideas, preciousness and honor. Um, but let me start off by talking about names. Okay, it's not saying that the name Father, as in a bunch of letters crammed together, is a thing that's holy. It's a name is the person, right? So back in the 50s, I don't know if any of um, you married ladies did this when you were in your younger years, but back in the 50s, for sure, it was a practice, or 60s, where if a young lady was kind of interested in some hot stud muffin on the football team, she might pull out a journal and start writing, Mr. and Mrs. Clairborn Finger, or whatever the name is. Um, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Janine Clairborn Finger, and she would write her name next to his name as a way of kind of adoring the stud muffinness of the guy. Have you ever heard about this before? I 
Lynn confirmed to me that this kind of thing did. So there may be a piece of paper in the world somewhere that said Mr. and Mrs. Dave Kaler somewhere. I don't know if did that ever happen. I won't put you on the spot, even though I just did. And it's kind of like in that practice, the writing of the name was a way of enjoying and adoring that person that she had a crush on, right? Write down the name. So beautiful. What a wonderful name. And we, we, we get that a bit when we sing about the name of Jesus. It has to do with the person. It defines who they are. It describes who they are. And the prayer to ask God to make his name holy is really a prayer to ask God to make who he is precious to us and who he is honorable to us. Precious and honorable. And God, make us love you, make us respect you, Make us fear you, make us obey you. That's really what that prayer is about. And that is the most important prayer you can pray because that is what Christianity is all about. It's about bringing people who are in their hearts in rebellion against God to a place where they love and honor and obey the Father. That's what it's all about. So Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he, he describes it like this. He says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is an encapsulation of why Jesus came. He came to suffer to bring us to the Father. He wants us to come back to the Father. He wants us to have a great relationship with the Father. He wants us to stop dishonoring the Father and start to honor the Father. He wants us to stop disobeying the Father and obey the Father. He wants us to stop fearing the Father in the bad way and start fearing him in the good way. He wants us to start stop not loving him and to start loving him. And that's why he came and that's why he lived and that's why he died and that's why he was born again. And that's why he had to secure for us an eternal life in heaven so that we could spend forever hallowing the name of the Father with all our love and all our praise and all our enjoyment of him. This is the big picture. So that's why that's the first prayer. And the best prayer and the biggest prayer and every other prayer is meant to serve this one great mission to make people treat the father as holy. And God, Jesus wants us to pray for that. And I'm saying that making a name holy is a combination of preciousness and honorable and preciousness is just like you just love this person so much. Okay, so personal story. Jackie and I had a fight the other day. It's true. Jackie couldn't remember it. It was quite a small one. I remember it. Um, Something happened. She did something quite innocently, I'm sure, that made me feel disrespected or unloved, whatever. It it pressed on my self-pity button, which is a lot bigger than it should be. Um, Easily trodden on. Sometimes even house flies can turn it off. And uh, if they land, if they fly by it too close, it's meep. And um, Anyhow, that happened, and so I just kind of got a little cool to her, and I wasn't just as affectionate and interactive as I was. And so she came, followed on to me. I think I was trying to get dressed. I was looking for just the right um, button-up shirt that would go with my sweater vest, because I was in my sweater vest phase um, late November, early December. I love sweater vests. Stay on target. Anyhow, so we had this little, just not, not, not great season. And it only lasted about 10 minutes. She came and she said, something feels off. And we talked about it and we worked through it. No problem. And I went to work and I drove up on the driveway on, at 36 McKenzie. And I just 
I, you know, I have to talk with God before I go into the building just to, to reconnect with him. And I just started to weep over 10 minutes lost with my wife. 10 minutes of sweet affection lost. 10 minutes of great fellowship lost. 10 minutes of being Christ-like to her and laying down my life for her lost to me feeling sorry for myself and cooling our relationship. And I was just so grieved because the name of Jackie Balfour is a holy thing to me. And that I would damage the preciousness of it was just wrong. It's just wrong. And so when we consider the name of the Father holy, we grieve over loss of relationship with the Father. We learn to hate everything that gets in the way of a precious relationship with the Father. Just like Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, he was hating every sin that gets in the way of us and our relationship with his Father, and he was destroying it in his death because he considers the name of his Father precious. And it also means honoring his name. Okay, and this is where I'll talk about John Patton a little bit. I'm, I'm reading the autobiography of John Patton, who was a missionary who lived in the 1800s, so it's not that long ago. And um, he, he takes about the first 50 or 60 or 70 pages of this book that's only 300 pages just to talk about his home life and especially his father. And he really had this rare, godly growing up. Um, experience where everywhere he looked, there were these faithful, godly people, Scottish Presbyterians. Whoop, whoop. Any other Scots in the room? Anybody? 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 Just got to take it where I can get it. Anyhow, I'm a stranger in a strange land here in the heartland of Mennonite, Bill. Anyhow, um, and he, he just enjoys telling these stories of these people. His great uncle, when he was a young man, um, got captured by a press gang, okay? And a press gang were a group of people who had the legal right to find young men and arrest them and force them to row in the British Navy, okay? So it was like the draft from Vietnam, except these guys just went around individually drafting people. Just like, hey, you, are, you look young and sturdy. Are you married? Um, no? Okay, well, come with us. <laughs> and they, in the next two years of your life is pulling on an oar, for the British Navy. And so that was his, that was his, the start of his adventure. Something went on in there and he actually got captured by a famous pirate. And the name escapes me right now, but he spent some time working on a pirate ship. And he, this great uncle of John Patton would, when he's telling the story, reveal the gigantic scar he had on his shoulder because one day he had done something that ticked off the pirate captain and the pirate captain had hit him with this swashbuckling saber or whatever it was. So, you know, he had one of those great scars. All young boys love their uncle's awesome scars, especially when they come from pirate kings. Anyhow, this uh, uncle eventually got mad about working for a pirate and he and two other guys decided they're going to escape. So they, I think they jumped ship and tried to swim away. And, um, 
and the pirates were shooting at them. So one of the three guys that was trying to escape got hit. And so John Patton said that his uncle had to, quote, unquote, cut him loose. And I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I think it meant pushing the body off of the raft or whatever they were using, you know. Okay, he's not helping us escape right now. Just into Davy Jones' locker. Whatever it was, they managed to swim to some caves, and they spent two days hiding out in these caves as the pirates searched for them. And they eventually escaped these caves, and as the story goes, his uncle, who had fairly long, flowing, blonde hair, managed to find someone who would give him a woman's dress, and he spent a few days um, escaping other British officers by pretending to be a woman before he could find a coal ship's captain who would sail him back to Scotland, where he promptly settled down, got married, had kids, and just tried to keep a job, um, because that's a lot better than dressing up as a woman to escape pirates. Amen? Can I get an amen? Truer things rarely spoken at church. So he just, he, this is his heritage. Um, some of his, um, his family background on his mother's side was that there were a series of people who had been martyred for um, being in the Reformation. But he, the, the main thing he tells about the story of his, his father, who had no great adventures, but just was one of the most godly, joyful men. And uh, as the story goes, you know, they had their house, which was just two big rooms. And one big room was kind of the kitchen and where everyone lived. And the other big room was the, the cottage industry where his dad made stockings. And in between these two big rooms, there was a small room, which was just like a chair and a small bed and a window. And his dad, every day, about three times a day, usually after a meal, would go into this midroom and just pray and sing psalms to the Lord and sing for him and pray for his family and pray for the lost and just pray, pray, pray. And the kids could hear him as they walked by in between these two rooms and they knew it was time to be really, really, really quiet and just honor the holiness of their dad, praying genuinely to their to, to God daily, multiple times a day. And he writes in his autobiography like that the kids never, they never spoke about it, but they never questioned where their father's constant joy came from, where the constant smile on his face came from. It came from the fact that he was regularly communing with Heavenly Father in prayer. He loved the Father. He hallowed his name, and it came out in his life. And uh, he was such a committed believer, and not in that way where sometimes when you say they're a committed believer, which, meant, which means that they fault find everybody around them, right? Like sometimes we get that there's some, he was a really committed Christian. He never met another Christian that he couldn't find fault with. That's sometimes what we feel like, you know, the really zealous ones, they hate everybody. And uh, he wasn't like that at all. He, he loved going to church so much and hearing the sermons. John Patton said that the highlight of their childhood was the four-mile walk back from church as they would digest the sermon with their dad. Four-mile walk there, for my walk back. He only missed church three times that John Patton can remember in 40 years. Hello? One time was a blizzard, so that, that he had to come back from. He didn't make it to church, so he had to come back. So the blizzard we had, that recent really bad one where there was two feet of snow, he tried to walk four miles to church through that. And didn't make it, so he had to come back. That was time number one. Time number two was when there was this big ice storm, and the roads were so slick. And now this is these are dirt roads, so it takes a lot of ice to make a dirt road slick. That he actually was crawling on his hands and knees back up the hill to their village. Okay, so he tried to get there again, but was thwarted by extreme weather on foot. And the third time was because of a cholera outbreak in their village, so that they were possibly contagious and they weren't allowed to leave. But 
the local authorities sent a delegation to their dad to say, um, please don't try to go to church. We know you never miss church, but please don't go. Because he was just, he loved the Lord and he loved the word. So anyhow, this is John Patton's childhood. Joy, scripture, prayers, the most amazing dad. And as John Patton was growing up, it was time for him to leave. He was going to go to the city and become a teacher and then have a city outreach before he um, went on missions to the South Pacific to cannibals and to try to teach them the gospel. Um, his, he, he tells this story when his dad was walking him away from home, where he was kind of leaving home. And uh, they walked for some miles, and they weren't speaking. His dad was just weeping and praying quietly most of the time. And they said their goodbyes. And they, I think the pathway that I understand it went around a hill. And so they said goodbye near the, the bottom of the hill, and they walked away from, from each other a bit. But they both got the idea, I'm going to go climb that hill and watch the other one walk away. And so John Patton saw his dad farther down the hill looking for him, but his dad never noticed that he had also walked the hill, so his dad just walked back down the hill and went walking home. And... Um, John Patton just, he says this in his autobiography, and these, these words are so piercing to me, and I'm going to explain to you in a second why I've given you all these stories. He says, I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. So he's watching his dad walk away after saying goodbye for, to him. And then, hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as to never grieve or dishonor such a father or a mother as God had given me. And I'm saying that this is a picture of what it's like to howl the name of somebody. He says, knowing my dad and his holiness and his love, I vowed regularly and deeply to God that by his help, I would live and act in such a ways to never grieve or dishonor such a father as I have. And that that for me is an earthly picture of what it's like to hallow the name of the Father, that we would just know the holiness and the goodness and the righteousness and the love and the tenderness and the mercy and the faithfulness of our Heavenly Father so much that we would vow deeply and regularly and say, God, would you help me to act and to live in such a way that I would never grieve you or dishonor your name. I haven't, I haven't come across a better example of what it means to hallow the name of the Father than to pray that he would help you to live and to act in such a way that you would never grieve him or dishonor his name in the world. Because of love. And so when I think about my prayer time and my Bible time for 2017, and of course I've thought about having resolutions, you know, I have this regular commitment to try to read the entire Bible through in a year. Sometimes I do better and sometimes I do worse, but that's kind of my commitment. I was like, I don't want to do a quantity commitment this year because it's really easy to power through most of Leviticus and be like, you know what I mean? It's like, it's easy for me. Maybe you're different, but it can be very easy. The first nine chapters of Chronicles to just be like, <laughs> dig in the hole. So that's not my goal. Um, and for a while, I, I floated the idea of the goal being to enjoy the Lord 
in Bible reading and prayer this year more. That's more and more. Just, I just want to enjoy time with my God. But now for me, it's like I want, I want to hallow the name of my Father in, in how I treat the Scripture this year. I want to be in the Word in such a way that I'm meeting with God and He is just pleased with my, my trust and my obedience as I read His words. I want to spend the year on my knees in my heart in front of the Word, believing Him more, tr- trusting what He said more, loving what He said more, getting over my bad reactions to what he has said and done more. And I do have those sometimes just like, no, you're the best father ever and you never have or will do anything wrong. Your word is pure and right. Help me to love you and honor you. Ah, Time, 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 time. I'm glad it's January 1st because it means I've got a whole year to finish this message. Matt, can you start dishing out some food and drink for these fine folk? (laughs) Maybe get the beds out. Um, Three small ideas about how God might answer our prayers that he would cause us to hallow his name. Number one, hallowing his name by loving his will. It's no surprised to me that after Jesus says, pray that God's name would be made holy in the world and in your life, the next thing he says is, pray that his will would be done, that his kingdom would come. And what I mean by that is his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his will would be done well and with vigor and zeal. Like, it's hard for me to imagine God in heaven saying to his angels, would you go do this? And they'd be like, oh man, I'm working on something in Minecraft here. You know, I'm building a cool mountain. With the la- if I chop this part, the lava comes all the way down. Can't imagine that. So I, can, I could see that as we seek for God to make us more and more people who hallow his name, that one of the first things he would do is, is teach us to love his will deeply and profoundly. And I've been thinking about Jesus and how Jesus did that. Um, Two examples in Jesus' actions and in his words. I'll read them both and then talk about them. John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And then in John 12, 49 through 50, Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father's told me. And so he's saying, everything I do, I am just doing the will of the Father. Everything I say, I am only doing the will of the Father. It's His will. Whatever I'm doing or saying is His will. You don't have to ask, did God want you to do that? I don't do anything unless God has shown me it's what He's doing and I partner with Him in His will and I don't say anything except what God has commanded me to say and I say it how He's commanded me to say it. That is the the level of will submission that the Son was operating at. And we see it again in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is approaching the cross and he's saying, I don't actually anticipate that the cross will be fun. But not what I will, but what you will be done. Okay? So we, I just personally, maybe you don't, I need to see this about Jesus. Everything he did was an expression 
of Jesus saying to the Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forever in heaven, the word of God, the son of God was doing the Father's will and then he came down to earth and he did the will of the Father on earth just like he did in heaven. And so when he's giving us that prayer, he's saying, have my life. Everything I said was exactly what the Father wanted me to say. I didn't deviate from His will. I love the will of the Father, and I hallow His name by limiting myself to His revealed will to me. And in my actions as well, I find this just so amazing and challenging, but just wonderful. I want to fill the world full of people who love the will of the Father. It is the rarest thing in North America. It is more rare than palladium, which some of you have never even heard of. It's a precious metal. It might be in your smartphone. It's one of the rarest things in a culture that whose motto is believe in yourself. Right? You see that on your Facebook feed all the time and you hardly even bat an eye. You don't even understand that it is one of the most demonic ideas available to humankind to believe in yourself when Jesus says, actually, you should be praying that his will is what happens in your actions and in your speech. It was one of the rarest things in the world to find people who who really just want to do the will of God. And I'm not saying it's me, but I can see that that's where Jesus is calling each one of us. And that's how we hallow his name. For instance, whatever I'm doing, if I'm bucking the will of God, I'm really not demonstrating that he is precious or worthy of obedience. Amen? Whatever I'm doing, if I'm like, the will of God, it really gets in the way of my games nights. That subtext is, God isn't really that great that you would obey him. So I throw up my hands. Second thing he may do for us as we pray that he would hallow his name amongst us and that we seek to participate with that prayer being answered is that he'll teach us to suffer well. Anybody excited yet? I don't know what's going to happen to you in 2017, but this I can tell you, there's going to be some pain, some disappointments, some loneliness. If you are a Christian, you are going to enter into the kingdom through all kinds of trials and troubles. Let me take you back to John Patton for a little bit as an example of suffering well that I am so attracted to that, and I know I'm not there yet. Okay, so he, he and his new wife traveled to the other side of the planet from Scotland to the South Pacific to minister to cannibals. Okay, they're going to an island where they know they eat people and that they know they eat children. Every, almost every single person they talk to is going to have had human flesh pass past their lips into their stomachs. And they think this is a great idea. Uh, John Patton tells the story of a Christian guy. This is really tough, but one of the islanders who was moping around one day and he said, why are you looking so downcast? And he said, well, a child had died and and they told me I'm not getting any of it. And so I'm really disappointed because the kid's meat is a lot more tender than the older people. So that was his context. And he had moved there with his wife. And they were just kind of getting started. They were learning some of the language. They built a hut. They were building some relationship. They, were, they had learned how to say, what's that? And so that they could learn some of the names and stuff. And um, 
but not long after they'd gotten there, uh, they had their first child, and his wife didn't recover. She, I think, got malaria, and she passed away a little bit after the baby came, and then about a week after mom died, the baby died. And so one of the first things he did as a missionary in on the island of Tana is to dig his wife's and son's graves. And he said, because of how things were at, I had to do most of the digging. So that's hard. I don't, I don't get that. He says in his autobiography, if you have been through something like this before, if you've had to dig your own wife's and son's grave after you've gone halfway around the world to serve Jesus, um, you know what, what it was like. And if you don't know what it's like, I can't help you. He said that during that time, um, he feels like he lost his reason for a season, like he just went kind of crazy. And I don't know what that looked like. There were no details, but I believe him. Um, But he writes this, reflecting over the pain of it, he writes this. um, He said, I felt her loss, talking about his wife, beyond all conception or description. Okay, He he knows how to write. So so if it were possible, he could have described it. I felt her loss beyond all conception or description in that dark land. Okay, Not only did his wife and child die, but they were the only other white people on this island full of cannibals. It was verily difficult, so it was so difficult to be resigned, left alone, and in sorrowful circumstances. But, and here's the but that amazes me, okay? This is the stunner about learning to honor the Father by suffering well. But feeling immovably assured that my God and Father was too wise and loving to make a mistake in anything he does or permits, I looked up to the Lord for help and struggled on in his work. He says, I don't pretend to see through the mystery of why God calls away the young, the promising, or those sorely needed from his service here. But this I do know and feel, that in light of such decisions, he says dispensations, but he means like things that happen in life under God's sovereignty, it is fit for all of us to learn how to love and serve the Lord in such a way that we would be ready at his call for death and eternity. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, what happened to me is about as bad as it could get, and you still survive through it. But I was convinced, immovably convinced, that my God and Father is so wise and loving that he is not capable of making a mistake in what he chooses to happen or allows to permit in my life while I'm serving him. So I soldiered on. And I read those words and I believe that they're true because of all that he went through. Another couple of years of being regularly attempted to be killed by cannibals. And I think, you can have that kind of heart. You can have that kind of soul. It's possible for someone to have that happen and say, even though I went crazy for a time, I was most convinced that God is so good and loving that he did not make a mistake in what happened here And I'm going to keep working for him and serving him. And instead of taking the lesson, God is evil, God is bad, God's messing me around. Instead, I'm going to take the lesson that any one of us could go at any time. And it's our job to be ready to go when our time has come. that, That is a soul that has hallowed the name of the Father. And that's all I can say about that. I'm actually going to end there just for time's sake, though I've got more to say, and I'm slightly grieved I'm not going to say it. Um, The thing 
that I want to emphasize about this. I know one of the reasons that I'm so drawn to these stories of John Patton's dad is because I wished it had been my story. And I long for it to be my children's story. For them to be able to grow up and say, the best thing about my childhood was my dad, and he taught me what it was like to trust the father, and therefore I can be sustained on an island of cannibals because I know what the father's like through my dad. I wish that had been my story, and it wasn't. Like many of you here, it wasn't, or it isn't. And I so badly want that to be my kid's testimony. And you can panic and feel very discouraged. Ladies, let me tell you the truth. If you really want to depress a guy, describe to him what biblical fathering looks like. Amen? I'm getting some dude head nodage here. If you really want a guy to feel like never getting out of bed again, paint the picture from the scripture of what a biblical father is. I don't, I, but Jesus doesn't say, do this or else. He says, pray that the Father would make his name that holy here. And look to the Father to do it. Okay? So don't get discouraged, and guys and gals, but especially the guys. Instead, let's pray that the Father would accomplish such a hallowing of his name in our lives, in our church, that he would accomplish such a thing in us knowing him that we would live and act in such a way that we would never want to grieve him or bring him any dishonor by anything we do. And through that, the nations would come to Christ. Father, we just love you so much. And Lord, let me... Let me just say it, Father, hallow your name. Make your name so precious and holy to us in ways we could never dream or imagine that we would be able to be sustained by knowing you in unimaginable pain and that we would carry around in us such winsome joy that we would together be the best thing that would happen to our children and our brothers and sisters in the Lord and to the loss that we meet because of the overflow of knowing you through our Lord Jesus, who has purchased with his own blood any hope and all hope of this ever happening, his own mission being to bring us to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.